Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. That music is sort of an odd blend of Western and Eastern. Um, so we're talking about marriage today. Um, the late Louis Grizzard, who I never found particularly funny, did say one really funny thing. He was often married and often divorced. And he said uh, towards the end of that whole process uh, that the next time he wasn't going to get married. He said, I'm not going to get married. I'm just going to find a woman I don't like and buy her a house. Um, and sort of short-circuiting that whole process. Well, I mean, you know what? We'll be talking about things that more or less at least circle around that point, which is why do people keep getting married? Do people keep getting married as much as they used to? Do they get married for the same reasons? And as we look at marriage and analyze it, I mean, are we, I think we continue to ask ourselves questions as a society. How, how, how necessary is this? Why is it necessary? Um, if it's not necessary, what would you do instead of it? And what are the downsides to doing that thing and not it? Okay, those are enough abstract questions. Um, let's, let me tell you who the guests are. The guests are excellent guests. We're very happy to have both of them. So joining me from the studios of, studios of KQED on the West Coast, uh, Claire Kane Miller is a journalist for The Upshot on the New York Times, and she reports on gender, work, and family. So she's got access to all the latest data about this stuff. And Stephanie Kuntz is professor at uh, Evergreen State University and co-chair and director of public education. This is a long title. At the Council of Contemporary Families, she's written many books, including Marriage, A History, From Obedience to Intimacy, or How Love Conquered Marriage. She joins us by phone from Olympia, Washington. And so um, I'm going to uh, have you kick it off for us, Stephanie Kuntz, uh, and just... Um, you know, in five minutes, just describe the whole history of marriage. No, that's not <laughs> what I'm going to ask you to do. Um, no, I, you know, we often talk about marriage as though it were this very immutable thing, this yes. this this eternal constant in life. If you, you know, whether, whether you're reading a Shakespeare sonnet or the most recent decision about marriage from Justice Kennedy, where he says, "No union is more profound than marriage, for it embodies the highest ideals of love." Fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family in forming a marital uh, union. Two people become something greater than once they were. Well, Stephanie, that is at, at, at the same time a very traditional notion and a very modern notion. I mean, it depends on how big a swatch of history you look at. That you know, thousands of years ago, that would have made fairly little sense, I would assume. Well, yes. As a matter of fact, it's a much more recent notion than most people uh, realize. I mean, both sides in the Supreme Court decision uh, got it a little wrong about the history. Justice Roberts, who argued that uh, marriage is always between one man, one woman, well, actually, uh, the most uh, favored kind of marriage through most of history was one man, several women, and there's been many other alternatives as well. But Kennedy as well, uh, in, I, I, think maybe he, I, I think he made the right decision, but for the wrong reasons, not because of the long traditions of marriage, but because we've changed them for thousands of years, marriage was not about love. It was an economic and political arrangement entered into for the sake of the parents who wanted to find advantageous in-laws. Uh, it was not about free choice. Uh, it wasn't until the late 18th century that love and free choice began to be societal values, and 
But even after that, another very important long-range part of marriage continued, and that was that it was about the subordination and control of women. Um, Men owned all of women's property, all of their labor, their body. And, you know, vestiges of that continued right up until the 1970s. We had head and master laws. The definition of rape, the legal definition of rape in every state uh, until 1976, when it started to change, was the forcible or violent intercourse with a woman other than your wife, because you were entitled to that. So in the last 40 years, we've embarked on a giant experiment. We're trying to make marriage fair to both parties, respectful, uh, mutually exciting, (laughs) interesting. You know, people say, well, nowadays people don't work at their marriages the way they did in the past. Well, they didn't have to work at their marriages in the past. Right. And although, you know, it it might be in the last 40 years, Stephanie, I think it's also important to note that during the progressive era, so like 100 plus years ago, almost every conversation we might have today was being had by reformers, often the same reformers who were looking at big public institutions like the meatpacking industry or something. were also looking at this smaller, more intimate institution of marriage. So you've got Upton and Meta Fuller Sinclair trying to exhibit their marriage as some kind of utopian model that turned out to be a disaster. But Charlotte, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, Havelock, Ellis, all these people asking questions that we today might find very familiar. Does yes, st- do- very familiar questions because uh, the crisis of the 19th century marriage had begin, begun to show itself. And this is interesting because we still have a lot of this in our psyches. In the 19th, you know, when the definition of marriage as a love match began, Social conservatives of the day were horrified. They said, oh, my gosh, if you let people marry for love, they're going to demand divorce. You know, men are going to give in to women. So there was this sort of first draft of the love match in the 19th century said, okay, the way that we'll get people to marry and stay married, even with this fragile idea of love, is we will define men and women as total opposites. Uh, women were redefined. You know, in the Middle Ages, women were thought of as the more sexually adventurous uh, gender, but they were redefined as sexually pure, men as the go-getters. And, you know, as, as changes began in the early 20th century, these led to crappy marriages. People were very unhappy. So all of these critiques began to be raised in the early 20th century. Unfortunately, they ended with a reinforcement of what then became the 1950s idea of the nuclear family uh, set apart from friends and extended family and just focused on the satisfaction of the husband and wife and their children. All right, as we go along here today talking about marriage, how it's changed over the centuries and how it's changing right now, if you have uh, words to contribute, if you've, if you've made decisions that are perhaps very different than the decisions your parents or grandparents might have made about marriage, 860-275-7266, or if you, if you haven't, if you see it the old way, 860-275-7266. If you use the same phone number for both states of mind, you may also tweet us at WNPR Colin. Our tweet master Greg Hill is here. He might even tweet back at you. So with all that in mind, um, Claire Kane Miller, uh, tell us just generally what the state of marriage is now. What do what do social sciences tell us right now is the state of American marriage? Is it a declining institution or just a changing institution? Well, like Stephanie said, American marriage right now is much more based on love and companionship and finding a confidant and sharing passions. It's much less based on what it was for a long time, which was a woman trying to find a breadwinner 
and a man trying to find someone to take care of the house and the children. Um, but overall, marriage is actually on the decline. Interestingly, so is divorce. I'll get to that in a minute. But right now, 20% of adults over 25 have never married at all. And that's a relatively high number. Um, the Pew Research Center, which has studied this pretty closely, says that young people, what, who we call the millennials now, a quarter of them will never have married by 2030 if the trends continue right now, which would be the highest share in modern history. So people are choosing not to marry in greater numbers. But when they do marry, they are staying married in greater numbers than they, than they had been you know, at the peak of the divorce that we remember so well when we all heard that statistic that half of all marriages end in divorce. That does not seem to be true any longer. So when they're marrying less, but when they do marry, they're staying married. Although, I, did you see the, uh, while well, I was just researching this thing, I did see this kind of um, recent study about, um, that, that actually sort of marked a change here in this century, as opposed to the 1990s, the last century, where there's actually kind of a U-shaped curve. If you wait long enough to get married, so you're in your late 20s or early 30s, then the likelihood of your divorce diminishes drastically. But if you wait longer than that, say into your late 30s uh, or early 40s, and that's when you first get married, your actual, your chance of divorce ratchets back up. And that was not the case even 20 years ago. The, the scientist who did the study didn't understand why that was. He himself said, I, I can't imagine, you know, what is, what's causing this. So I, that's I, interesting. I hadn't seen that study, but, but uh, yeah, go, sure. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Stephanie. Yeah. Because actually, uh, sociologist Philip Cohen uh, went and analyzed that. And what he found was that the um, the, the risk of divorce goes down for every year a woman delays marriage, up to about 35 to 39. It ticks up during that time period, and then it starts going down again. So we're not sure why it ticks up, but one possibility might be that these women are marrying divorced men, and that would be just at the age group that these men were having conflicts over custody and stuff like that. So this idea that there is, as it was often portrayed in the press, as a sweet spot and you should get married before uh, your, or your 30s or 35 is actually inaccurate, and you can't give people advice on the basis of these averages. That's one thing that we have to bear in mind, and I agree with everything Claire said, but you know the spread at the age of marriage is going up so much that I don't think marriage is dying. I just think that people are spending much more time outside of marriage, both before and after. And yes, we are going to have many people who, who won't marry at all, but some of them are marrying for the first time in their 50s. Some of this, it would seem, though, involves a decoupling. I'm going to ask you both about this, but, but Stephanie, I'll start with you. A decoupling of marriage from reproduction, right? For this to be the case, uh, it has to be, for the sweet spot or, or whatever we're going to call it to happen where it's happening, um, there has to be less uh, of a sort of one-on-one -on -one perfect Venn diagram overlap between getting married and wanting to reproduce. Um, yes, so, absolutely, yeah. and, and Claire probably has more specific uh, recent details than I, but what we've seen is that generally college-educated women have been waiting to have their babies until they, they get older, but it, co it poses a challenge to them because... Uh, your fertility, your uh, your fecundity does uh, does decrease, um, but we've also seen that people no longer feel that uh, it is absolutely essential to have a baby in marriage. People are having, in growing numbers of women are having them in cohabiting relationships. The actual number of single mothers has declined, 
and teenage um, births have, have really declined for both unmarried and married. Uh, so there's a lot of complicated intersecting things here. But yes, um, marriage is no longer the only place where people make long-term decisions, enter into long-term obligations, and live most of their lives. And as a society, without disrespecting marriage or uh, in any way you know, disadvantaging it, we have to understand that it's not the only place people are going to have obligations, need help meeting those obligations, and need exit rules when they want to leave those relationships. So, Claire Kane Miller, can you tell us more about that? The, 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 what, to what degree we've decoupled the idea, I want to start a family and I want to get married? It's pretty astonishing to me when I saw the numbers. Today, 40% of babies are born to unmarried mothers. I mean, that's saying almost half of babies born are to unmarried mothers. So I think we've really thoroughly in this society decoupled the idea that you have to be married to have a baby. That data, by the way, comes from Isabel Sawhill at Brookings. And a lot of those, like like Stephanie said, are to people who are in um, cohabiting relationships. It's, it's a little bit hard to break out, you know, whether um, they're cohabiting or not, um, like she said, a lot of single the rates of single motherhood among certain segments that um, people have been concerned about, like teenagers, um, are going down. The rate of single motherhood among women over 35 is going up. And these are women who are doing it completely deliberately and voluntarily. They're mostly going out and, you know, paying to get a sperm donation and have artificial insemination. So they know exactly what they're doing and they're planning to do it because, you know, for whatever reason, they're, they don't have a partner at 35 and they want to have a baby before, you know, they lose their fertility um, and, and they don't see a problem with doing it outside of marriage. Well, I mean, so Claire, this is probably, uh, it's two different phenomena at once, right? We know at one ec- ec- uh, end of the socioeconomic spectrum, there are women who wind up having children that they just, uh, they didn't, and that's probably a slightly more constant thing. It, it wasn't planned. Um, it didn't, the marriage thing didn't work out. They're single moms, maybe not with a high degree of choice or only with a partial degree of choice. So in a way, we're, when we're talking about this other thing, it's a little bit boutique isn't it? I mean, isn't, it, it may be changing at a rapid rate, but it's it's one sector of society. That's absolutely true, but what surprised me is that the rate of single motherhood among every single other sector has been declining since 2008. The only group of women for whom it's decreasing is those who are over 35 and those who are college educated, um, and they're more likely to be to be doing it by choice. And so one of the things, Stephanie Kuntz, that had to change um, is not just sort of demographics and not just economics, but there had to be sort of a huge a- attitudinal shift. And, and I think we all, I mean, I'm, because I'm just incredibly old, you know, I mean, I just, I've sat at weddings where I thought, wow, I'm incredibly old. I mean, I'm enjoying this, but the bride is pregnant and they also have their first child as the flower girl and now they're getting married and it's great and it's wonderful. And I'm really happy for them. But 30 years ago, this would have been like the most scandalous thing in the world and, you know, people would be refusing to attend the wedding and it would. And so we really have changed our, I don't know, Claire may have a, may, may have opinion figures about this, about how much we've changed our minds, but we know kind of anecdotally, Stephanie, that we've changed our minds about this phenomenon. Yes, we 
have in a couple of ways. One way is just recognizing hypocrisy. If you go back to the 1950s, uh, when uh, when half of uh, all women were married before 20, half of all teen uh, marriages were preceded by a, pre- a pregnant a premarital pregnancy. So they just had the. We no longer feel that you have to have a shotgun marriage, and part of that. Is, is changing cultural values, being more permissive. Another part of it is just the plain experience that shotgun marriages often end up uh, in divorces and in unhappy marriages that are not good for kids. So I think there's a much more wide sense that um, you need to, uh, there's much, I think there's quite a bit of disapproval of having an unplanned kid, uh, uh, but much less sense that that if you're planning, that that's a very bad thing. And, of course, I think one of the things that's encouraging about what Claire said is that the, the, these uh, unplanned births are still very, very, very much too wide. They're much higher than in Europe and, and other wealthy countries. Uh, but they are going down. And planned births in or out of marriage uh, tend to lead to more successful child-rearing situations. All right, why don't we grab a quick break here? Uh, We're talking about marriage today. We'd love to hear from you about how the institution of marriage has shifted for you. Here we are, back at the Colin McEnroe Show. We're talking about the institution of marriage today. Stephanie Kuntz is with us. She wrote the book, Marriage, A History, From Obedience to Intimacy or How Love Conquered Marriage. I want to talk specifically about that as we go along. Uh, Claire Kane Miller, a journalist for The Upshot on the New York Times, uh, of the New York Times, I keep saying on. She reports on gender, work, and family. She joins us from the studios of KQED. Um, Claire Kane Miller, I just want to go back to something that you said earlier, because I think it's maybe the most important paradigm shift is the notion of female choice, right? We... And we can see this in culture if you go back to Bronte novels and Jane Austen. I mean, really kind of the, the only desirable outcome is, reader, I married him. This is I mean, Women are almost helpless to do anything other than hope that they get married. We've gone from there to Trainwreck, where Amy Schumer is sort of kind of the, you know, the independent anti-monogamy person. Bill Hader's character is much more familiar with this kind of way of thinking. And culture tends to mirror society. I mean, that seems to be the thing that's showing up the most, that women now probably some a change that may have started anyway around the time of, uh, of availability of contraception, uh, women now get to make choices that didn't exist before. That's exactly right. A lot of these changes in marriage and in divorce have gone along with everything that really started in the 1970s, which is women getting a lot more education, women women being much more likely to have careers, to be able to financially support themselves, to have access to birth control so that they have some control over when they have children. You know, also things like the invention of household technology. There wasn't, there isn't as much housework to do because we have dishwashers and we have washing machines. All these things have meant that the gender roles have really become much more similar. Now, of course, you know, if we look at a lot of our families, we still have different gender roles, but they are much, much more similar than they were in the 1950s, for example. Um, and that's really changed marriage because people come in on equal footing and they expect to do, you know, semi-equal 
chores around the house and having to do with childcare. It's much more common to have a dual income family, and that's changed everything. One reason for the divorce spike in the 1980s, um, uh, social scientists who have studied it say, is that the people who got married, you know, in the 60s, thought that they were marrying along the old gender norms. The men were looking for a homemaker and the women were looking for a breadwinner. And then the feminist revolution came about and the women decided, I actually don't want to be stuck in this situation. I see that they, I have other opportunities. Um, and that led to a lot of the divorces that we saw in the late 70s and early 80s. We've got a lot of calls coming in. Parka, Martha, Colleen, hang on for just a second. I wanted to ask, I was going to ask this towards the end of the show, Stephanie Coons, but it just flows so naturally from uh, what uh, what Claire Kane Miller just said, too. Is, you know, as we watch the next round of evolution, you start reading articles, you know, by uh, like Hannah, Hannah Rosen famously wrote kind of, are, are men necessary? Are they on their way out? And I mean, it does seem as though the, the next evolution is, and we've already alluded to it on this show, women making decisions about starting a family that have nothing to do with men and, and, and the notion anyway that for a woman, marriage is not only not necessary, it's possible that a, an ongoing relationship with a man is not necessary. I mean, do you think we'll come to a point where there are large numbers of women who just want to do it on their own, essentially be married to themselves? Well, that's a very interesting question because the context in which so many women have come to this is the context in which we were still trying to sort through all of these interesting uh, and difficult gender transitions with men being much later to accept the ideas of equality and uh, much later to, to walk the walk even once they started talking the talk. One interesting thing we've seen in Europe is that actually uh, you're seeing um, divorce rates go down where men have become more involved in family life. Uh, and so there's some sense that perhaps as men and women really do reach egalitarian ideas about what they want from relationships, that you might see sort of not a restabilization in the old days because there will be plenty of women and men who don't want to marry. But we may find that actually... Feminism, which initially destabilized uh, families, may actually be its last best hope <laughs> to have, have more stable marriages. That said, we have to remember that with the extension of the lifespan and the options open to people, people are no longer willing to stay in an empty uh, shell marriage. We've seen the doubling of a divorce rate uh, for people over 50, a tripling almost for people over 65. Uh, and, and although that starts from a small base and is still small, it indicates that marriage does take more sustained work. Uh, you know, you can't just rest on your laurels. <laughs> and so that's another issue we face in marriages. By the way, when I talk about marrying yourself, that's actually a, a thing these days. It's called sologamy or self-marriage. People actually do have ceremonies in which they, they marry themselves. Women get wedding dresses and... Um <laughs> there's, uh, there's a terrific video. We'll post it up on the website maybe uh, when we do this thing. All right, so uh, here's Parker with a call, uh, with a question or a comment. Hi, Parker. You're on the air with us. Uh, hi, Colin. Um, I've called before. You know, we just celebrated our 50th, and um, we've been together um, since late December 1963, which they, they probably should set a song aside about that. Because? <laughs> well, there's already been one. Oh, okay. Um, um, but, you know, I've always loved her. She's always loved me. But we haven't always loved, liked each other. And I think 
because of that, we've had a stronger relationship because we knew there were going to be aspects of, you know, disagreement, uh, controversy, and um, problems within the marriage, um, family, money, whatever. And so even with all those aspects, we seem to be able to hold it together and had a lot of good times. And whether it was financially not being able to do the things we wanted to do, we still maintain that closeness and that interaction. Well, you know, um, Stephanie Kuntz, this notion of love actually is, again, a fairly modern uh, gloss on the institution of marriage, right? This notion that, that, that love is the most important thing, love comes first. That was introduced relatively late into the cycle. Yes, I mean, love was, and there were some societies in which love was explicitly seen as something you could only have true love outside of marriage, since marriage was an economic and political arrangement. Um, I think the biggest challenge for us today is to figure out a new definition of love and to move away from the 19th century definition of love as opposites. I think that's become a real problem. And I have to say to Parker that I doubt that you haven't liked your wife. I think that my sense of what I see in marriages as they evolve is that liking has become increasingly important. You can think you love somebody. They're exciting. They're different. They're all of these kinds of things. Uh, and I think a lot of marriages that formed in the 50s and 60s had such strict gender roles that that counted as love, and you didn't really need to like or know the person as an individual. I think today, whatever your disagreements and arguments are absolutely essential. In fact, we find that bickering in the first three years of marriage is, uh, predicts a better and happier marriage because you work things out. But you have to like and respect each other in a way that was not necessary in the past when there was such clear-cut gender rules, and women basically had to kind of go along with them. You know, uh, Claire, uh, it must be hard for social science to pin down some of these words. You know, these are words, uh, words like like and love, are they're kind of muddy words that are have highly subjective interpretations. And I certainly have heard members of the so-called greatest generation say almost the exact opposite of what Parker uh, just said. You know, that people, maybe the baby boomers, have too high an expectation for love and that what really held their marriage together was liking one another and respecting one another. And, you know, every day didn't have to be these blue birds fluttering around them and, and, and hearts and violins, that, that, that it was sort of the opposite. So I, when social scientists study something like love, it's got to be a fairly difficult thing to pin to a board. It absolutely is, but there are some ways to do it. Um, there are a lot of measurements of happiness. There are different surveys um, that you know countries do, and Gallup does one that try to measure happiness. And um, one very interesting study I saw found that the most important thing to to a happy marriage is friendship. So it's not romantic love. It's the idea of having, you know, a best friend for support, for confiding, um, for being there when times are bad or for, you know, having fun with when times are good. Um, so, so that sort of speaks to the idea um, that even when maybe the romance wears off, there's, there's something more there. All right. So let's uh, take another phone call from uh, Caroline in Coventry. Um, Caroline, I think com you come from a generation. There was this trope, there was this motif, this thing that people said that, uh, that marriage was a piece of paper. We don't need a piece of paper uh, to make us married. We don't need a piece of paper 
paper to legitimize or sanction our love. Um, if, if you're the person I think you are, uh, you're about to tell <laughs> us your experience with that particular trope or idea. Hi, Colin. Yeah, thank you so much for taking my call. I love your show. Um, I think I would maybe self-identify a little bit in that category. I'm 27, and many of my friends are already starting to get married. Um, and I actually really appreciate what your uh, guest just said about the most important thing in a relationship being friendship. Uh, my partner and I, Steve, have been together for well over four years. We're completely committed to each other, and we, we really feel like we're each other's best friends, and we're absolutely choosing not to be married right now. And I was wondering if you or your guests would address the growing population of young people who no longer see marriage as like a religious right, because often we are no longer religious as young college-educated people. I myself don't subscribe to any specific beliefs, so becoming married as a rite of passage is not as important. Um, but the downshot of that is that we feel like we're really at a disadvantage in terms of the great legal benefits that being married offers, especially tax and other protections when you have a partner that you're committed to. So we're kind of in this weird middle ground where we're really committed, we love each other, but yeah, I guess we're a little reluctant to the pressure of being married. Um, you know, Steve asks, gets asked all the time, when are you going to ask her to marry her? When are you going to ask her to marry you? And, you know, it's, it's just, it's always, always, always a topic when you're unmarried but in a committed relationship where you live together. All right. I think both of our, uh, our uh, guests will have things to say about that. Claire, why don't you get started, though, and then we'll go to Stephanie. Well, you're not alone at all. I mean, this young people in exactly your generation are um, people who are putting off marriage longer. It's hard to know, you know, what will happen by the time you're 35 because you're not yet. But some people are predicting um, that a, the largest share in modern history of millennials will not be married. Um, others just say, you know, people will marry much, much later. I think that in a lot of ways, public policy has not yet, public policy and societal values have not yet caught up with the fact that people are marrying less often and marrying later. I know exactly what you mean. It's sort of like, you know, sometimes I hear people in their late 20s say, it's hard, I'm in this committed relationship, but at work I refer to someone as my boyfriend. And that makes it sound like it's this trivial person when in fact it's basically a husband. We're committed to each other. We live together. We've just chosen not to get married. And, you know, tax policy, policies around children, all of these things will need to change um, if these trends continue where people either marry much later or don't marry at all. I, I would just add to that, and there, I read an essay about this uh, sort of confirming that I'm not the only person who does this. I'm not married at the moment, and but I frequently use the term wife just because it takes, like, I don't know, we're just, we're, rent, we're taking a place for a weekend in Maine through Airbnb. I'm just saying wife. I'm not going to explain I'm 60 years old. I have a girlfriend. It just takes too long. It sounds too stupid. And I think a lot of people do that. They just use those marital terms because the person hearing them will understand the marital terms and the re otherwise you find you sound like you have some native american relationship the woman who shares my place and we eat together but we're not married um so um stephanie Kuntz, it seems to me that um the more things change the more they stay the same so the things that we just heard caroline say were in fact said by some of the reformers of the progressive era that we talked about before and they were certainly said in the 1960s and 1970s right we're going to reinvent all these institutions a piece of paper doesn't make you married love makes you married i mean those movements seem to kind of go in cycles 
Well, I think uh, for about 100 years we've recognized, uh, many people have recognized, and increasing numbers in the last 40 years have recognized that a piece of paper doesn't guarantee anything. It does not guarantee that this will be a good and lasting and loving and respectful relationship. And you can have a such a relationship outside marriage. There's nothing magical. And this is where uh, these 1990s marriage promoters went wrong. There's nothing magical about marriage that is going to change the nature of a relationship. On the other hand, um, I suspect that many of these young people will eventually get married, both for the legal and practical, and also because here, especially in the United States, we do have this cultural respect for marriage that we don't extend to other partnerships. You know, there's more of a sense that you got to support the couple than when they're just living together. Uh, your family, your friends is more supportive. And so that's happening. Um, but, you know, it's, it, even in Scandinavia, where cohabitation is so much more common, after a couple of kids, um, people do tend to get married. So I don't expect marriage to die out. But I think the big change is that we now don't see marriage as a magic uh, solution to making a good relationship, we often see it as a culmination or proof or capstone of the relationship that we have built uh, up together. And some people do fine without it, but other people move on to it. But this is a huge change. Back in the 50s and 60s, it was the way you started your life. You started with this exception, marriage will make us a good partnership. And now, I think more realistically, people say we got to prove we're good partners before we actually do this marriage. It's thing. a great point that you know, for a long time it was let's get married so we can get a house, so we can yeah. have kids, so we can do all these other things. And now it's let's do all these other things, and if they work out okay, then let's get married. Um, and, and I do think that that institution, it, it exists still in a very psycho, psychological way. And I mean, if, even if you think of the area, area of linguistics, if they're mirrors of social reality, well, there'd be a better word than there is right now. I mean, I wouldn't be struggling at age 60 with a term like girlfriend, partner sounds too sterile. There, you know, there just is significant other takes too long to say. If, in fact, there was something that society thought was as good as marriage, was an easy substitute for it, there'd be a word for it that just, you know, that spilled off your lips very comfortably. Um, here's Lisa, uh, who has a, more of a kind of a long-term experience with this whole idea of not needing the piece of paper. Hi, Lisa. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. How are you? Good. Good. So, yes, I um, <clears throat> when I was 26, I um, got pregnant, and my boyfriend at the time and I decided not to get married. We decided we were in a committed relationship and that, um, you know, the act of having children together was enough of a commitment for that or for us. And um, <clears throat> uh, about 13 years later, we broke up, and I discovered that the um, legal protections that we would have had had we been married, I did not have. And so, yeah, I mean... And so when, now, at the, at the time, I didn't regret it. I, I do regret it now because there's no, you know, things like uh, he worked, I didn't. Mm -hmm. So I started back into the workforce, you know, at a, at a much lower pay rate. And, you know, the state of Connecticut does, they have a, <clears throat> a whole... Uh, percentage thing for child support so i did get child support but there was there was they don't add into that the fact that i had been out of work for 12 years taking care of children and he had been advancing his career there's no possibility of alimony um 
he was also putting money into a pension fund that didn't have my name on it and wasn't considered, you know, a community asset. So I lost all of that. And also there's, um, I'm not really an expert on it, but in my understanding, if you're married for over seven years when it comes to collecting Social Security, you can collect based on your spouse's income. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but... Which which I cannot do. Right. I know you from Facebook, and I know you from a previous conversation that we had. Weren't you even threatened with being arrested for, quote, stealing your car? Yeah, when things got acrimonious, both of the cars were in his name because he registered them, and at one point he called me and told me he was going to call the police and accuse me of stealing what was my car, but because it was in his name, I suppose he could have done that. He didn't end up doing it. But, but yeah, so, I mean, I felt, you know, when I was 26, I felt marriage was an archaic institution. I didn't need it. And really, those legal protections are important. And if I could go back, I would, you know, there's also, as I as I said to you in my message, I know someone who got divorced about the same time as, as we split up. She has a child the same age as my oldest child. We were talking about college when they were going to college, and it was part of her, their divorce settlement that the father would pay a certain percentage of the college. I don't have that either, and it's been a struggle. My second child is now going to college, and that's just been a a constant back-and-forth struggle. Right. That's almost boilerplate now, at least in Connecticut and divorce um, arrangements. I mean, the whole idea of of uh, paying or helping splitting the cost of college and that kind of stuff because people are so likely to bow out of such a crushing expense. So Claire Kane Miller, this is something you said a few seconds ago, that in some ways the mechanisms of society, the lattice work, the scaffolding uh, around human relationships hasn't really caught up that you have people like Lisa who, you know, who, who made a whole bunch of assumptions about what it meant either to be married or not married. But the reality is there's just all these sort of downsides that, that, uh, that if you you don't inspect them or get a civil union or spell them out in contract form, you really still still do tend to uh, stand to lose a lot. That's absolutely true. What Lisa's story really reminded me of was what the proponents of gay marriage were arguing until the Supreme Court made its decision. You know, it sounds very similar. We want the right to have some of this retirement income. We want the right to um, have community property when one of us chooses to stay home and raise kids. You know, we want to have, you know, shared custody if we split up. We want to be able to visit each other in the hospital. You know, it's what it's what gay people in long-term partnerships have been arguing for a long time, that they want some of those rights that marriage gives. And, and it's exactly the same in opposite-sex sex couples who, who are um, doing it outside of marriage. All right, we're going to grab a quick break. We have both of our guests still with us. We've got your great phone call. So, Deborah, Martha, Colleen, Jamie, uh, stay on the line. We will get to as many of you as we possibly can. Stephanie Kuntz, still with us. Claire Kane Miller, still with us. We'll be back. and when did you get married? Um, my first wife, we were very good friends. I would say we were best friends, and we both wanted to have a home and, uh, and start a family. We had been dating for a long time. We had always talked about getting married, and he looked very cute in a tuxedo. Why did I marry him? Because he looked cute in a suit. <laughs> Do you have any advice or there's something you wish you knew before you got married that you could give to other people who are about to take that step? Ask yourself, How important is it when you're having a fight? Truth is, it probably isn't. Don't worry about the the little things, you know? Like, people do worry about money, but to me, that's, that's not a big thing. 
Do you believe in marrying for love? I think you can marry for other reasons besides love, but I don't think that those last. Um, so for me, yeah, I have to, I have to marry for love. I'm one of those <laughs> one of those fools. <laughs> the uh, daughter of my uh, current significant other said to me one day earlier in our relationship, "If you'd like to start seeing a lot less of my mother, marry her." Uh, so we, I didn't. Uh, so anyway, we're talking about marriage today. I want to first of all say those uh, voices from the streets uh, were collected by Anna Geismar, I think. That sounded like, sounded like her voice anyway. Allison Ehrenreich, uh, another of our excellent interns, uh, is the person who was the driving force behind this show today, uh, the person who produced it. Betsy Kaplan's on the board. Uh, we've got all kinds of other wonderful interns. and But I, what we don't have is Kyone Wolf to make announcements like this one. So they will be inadequately made by me. Tomorrow, uh, we'll have two experts in the world of comedy, including one of my sort of comedy heroes I, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling not to embarrass myself already Martin Short will be joining us tomorrow so for a show about a summer show about comedy anyway today we're talking about the institution uh, institution of marriage and uh, our phone number actually I won't give out the phone number because we've got so many calls already our guests are Stephanie Kuntz uh, her books include marriage a history from obedience to intimacy or how love conquered marriage uh, and Claire Kane Miller, a journalist for the upshot of the New York Times. She reports on gender, work, and family, joins us from the studios of KQED. Before we go to the phones to, uh, here, I mean, we've talked about sort of alternatives to marriage or what happens when you, you don't recognize the kind of legal power of marriage. But the, the other option, obviously, is to to get married but do it the way that you want to do it. You know, get, get married but don't necessarily follow the template of your parents' generation or your grandparents' genera generation. And some of those things are kind of subtle, but the most simple and obvious one would be don't take your husband's name, right? So Claire Kane Miller, do we have stats on this? Uh, how, many, how many women are making that decision to retain uh, their, uh, their so-called maiden name? We do, and I was really surprised, actually, when I found out that in the last five or so years, keeping your maiden name is on the rise again, and it's actually higher than it was in the 1970s, which was when it really started as a trend. It started in the 70s in great numbers. It declined in the 80s and 90s, and now it's going up again. The difference is that a lot of women are not saying that it's for feminist reasons or as an expression of their independence the way that people did in the 70s. Now, of course, there are some women who do keep their maiden name for those reasons because they think taking their husband's name is patriarchic. But in many more cases, they are keeping their maiden name, they say, out of convenience. They're marrying later. They're more likely to have a career, and it's much harder to change their name. People at work know them in a certain name. They're also on social media. Many of the women I interviewed said, it would be so confusing. Nobody would know who I was on Facebook, so it just makes a lot more sense to use my own name. And because people are marrying later, they say, this has been my name for you know, 30, 33 years. It doesn't really make sense for me to change it. So those kind of reasons are a lot different from what you heard in the 70s. Um, I will say that most people still change their name. It's one of the gendered norms um, that is still extremely strong. It's only about 20% of women who are keeping their maiden names upon marriage. And Stephanie Kuntz, what I saw anecdotally in the 70s and early 80s were, were women retaining their, their original name um, and for the kinds of reasons that Claire just cited. Uh, and then so they get married, they retain their original name, and then they'd have kids and their kids would have a different uh, last name and th that would hold together for about 10 minutes and suddenly the woman would be saying you know it just doesn't work it doesn't work for my kids to have a different last name from from mine I, that, that's only my sidelines anecdotal impression i don't know what your research has told you about this well 
I think the rebound is a sign of, of how far we've come. I mean, in the 1970s, it was symbolic, and it had a good reason to be symbolic and expressive, because in the 1970s, um, you still, you, you know, when you got married, you were under control of your husband in very important ways. There were head and master laws. The man determined where the residence was. In many states, he could determine what happened to rental properties or community properties. He could share, leave his half to someone else, but you couldn't. So it was a very important state of saying, I, I don't like this. I want to be my own person. Uh, but, of course, we hadn't caught up with it enough, as you said, and it became inconvenient. Uh, and, you know, people pick up their kids at school and they thought they were strangers, so they backed off. Today, I think, the reason that they, when they say it's convenience, that is a symptom of the real independence women have gained. We no longer have to do it as a symbol because we have legal equality in marriage, but because we are coming to marriage with so much more um, career experience, many of us are, are saying, I, I, I said it myself, but that was a while ago, uh, you know, I don't want to change my name. I don't want to have people lose track of who I am and the achievements I already have. So. Some people have said, oh, well, you know, it's just a symptom that the post-feminism. No, it's not. It's a symptom that feminism has continued to make gains. Um, let me grab a couple of calls here. Uh, Martha from Groton has been on the line for a while. Hi, Martha. You're on the air. Hi. I want to thank Claire for that history and of marriage in the past. I think it's important. I'm going to try to find the book. I just wanted to say something she said triggered my grandmother divorced my grandfather in 1913. Wow. You know, that was so unusual that I thought, but maybe it, it isn't. But I thinking after listening that her mother was a suffragette. So uh, who knows what was going on in her mind. I've never figured it out, why she did it and all that. But I just wanted to add that piece. It's, it's not just 1970s or 1980s. We're divorcing kind yeah. of thing. I'm so. guessing because of the suffragette thing that you said that it may have something to do with what we talked about before, the progressive era. There was a stratum of society intellectually motivated people who were asking a lot of questions about the nature of marriage. And the divorce rate tripled um, between 1900 and the 1920s. So there you go. Um, I want to grab one more call and then we're going to run out of time here. Here's uh, Jamie on a cell phone. Hi, Jamie. You're on the air. Yes, sir. Hey, this is an absolutely wonderful conversation. I'm just driving down the road and and thought I'd call in, and I'm wondering how we incorporate into our understanding of the history of marriage, uh, how do we incorporate the early church where Paul says, hey, a man will leave his mother and father, and he will join his wife, and the two will become one. And then later on in Scripture, he says, you know, here's how a bride should love her husband, and the husband should love his bride uh, the same way that Christ loved the church. And I'm under the impression, at least from my experience, that so many people throughout the world have, have, have gotten married and use this as their foundation for staying married and for falling in love in some aspects. All right, so uh, I just don't want it to run out of time. Paul also said it's better to marry than to burn, although it's unclear which kind of burning he meant. But anyway, um, so, Stephanie, maybe start with you on, on this. Uh, he's sort of asking, I mean, marriage and religion were inextricably coupled to one another for most of human history, right? Or wrong? Uh, yes, but, but most religions insisted upon female uh, subordination to men, uh, despite the fact that there were sort of, you know, sort of little 
those statements about how the men shouldn't mistreat them. And actually, one of the most interesting things about early Christianity is that it was basically uh, not very sympathetic to marriage. Um, the idea was that if you got too involved with your husband or your wife, you were going to neglect your duty to build the larger Christian community. And Jesus says, if you don't leave me, and you know, if you stay, you, you reject your family, you go out and build. Uh, the Catholic Church for years showed that, that the unwedded celibate state was much higher and more sacred than the wedded state. So we have a lot of illusions about that part of our past as well. Um, it seems as though, from uh, some of your writings, uh, Claire, that what has maybe taken the place of this very sort of religiously-based understanding is a whole bunch of practical considerations. I mean, as you've written, one of the reasons that marriage is being delayed is essentially financial, right? Couples look at this and say, do we have the resources and the means to do this thing? That's absolutely right. It's like what Stephanie was saying earlier. Marriage used to be how you started to build your life. Now it's the culmination. You don't get married in a lot of times if you feel financially insecure. You wait until you have your finances sorted out. You wait until you can buy a house on your own, and then you get married, um, and that's a huge change. All right. Uh, listen, this has been a wonderful show. You've both been wonderful guests. We feel very lucky to have you, and uh, thanks very much to Allison Aaron right, to, for putting this all together. I just went on a personal note, wanted to say to Jamie that as uh, somebody who has recently been attending uh, almost every Sunday morning uh, an evangelical but inclusive church, I'm very surprised to find myself in an evangelical church, but that's where I go every Sunday morning, but it's, it's called ev evangelical inclusive, and the understanding of marriage there is radically different. I mean, the people who are... Uh, who are there are often couples, gay couples who are married. I mean, people whose marriages probably Paul would not have necessarily recognized. But even within in the evangelical Baptist movement, there's this trend. Uh, it's a very small trend so far, but it's a growing trend to say, well, what are we really talking about here? I mean, we really are maybe talking about uh, more significantly about love than we are of a very conventional linguistic understandings about what marriage is. If people, two people of any kind want to start a life together, why can't they? Uh, anyway, thanks to everybody who helped out with today's show. Great show. Thanks, Allison Ehrenreich. Thanks, Betsy Kaplan. Thanks, Anna, on the phones. We'll be back tomorrow with two masters of comedy. Everybody promises fidelity forever, which is maybe the most horrifying word I ever heard, and which is followed by a honeymoon where suddenly you realize it's saddled with.